The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, tonight I want to resume our study of church history and our text verse this evening is Matthew 16:18 which uh, I think by now you should be very well familiar with and we'll have this verse on our lesson sheet here for the next few weeks as we go through church history. Uh, Jesus said in that verse and I say unto, unto thee also unto thee thou art Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that last phrase that he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the place where we take our doctrine of perpetuity. That since the time that Christ began his church, there's always been a true church in the world. And uh, it's always been preaching the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And so our search as we go through history is for that church. We're looking for people, uh, for groups of people that have stayed true to New Testament doctrine. And we know that they exist because Christ said that they would. Uh, He even prayed to his heavenly Father, and he asked the Father to keep those that would believe the message that was taught by him and the apostles. And we know that Christ's prayers never went unanswered. And so we know that's a promise that was kept, and the church has survived all attempts to to stop it. Now, in the past few weeks, what I've done is uh, lay a lot of doctrinal groundwork to show you that uh, the many groups that claim to be true churches are not really true churches. They didn't begin with Christ and they don't hold a New Testament doctrine. And uh, we've been over a lot of material through that. I just don't have time to back up and give it to you again. So we're going to keep moving forward this evening. And uh, if you've had to miss anything, of course, all those sermons are available on CD or you can listen to them on the, on the Internet. So we're going through these different uh, eras of church history. And the first one that we talked about was the apostolic age. And that was the time in the beginning when Christ began the church. He started the church and uh, it continues on in the first century through the ministry of the apostles. And that was a period of transition of the church. Uh, It began as a Jewish church with Christ and those apostles and those that were saved in Jerusalem. And then it uh, transitioned into a Gentile church as the Jews began to reject the gospel. And Gentile people came in and they believed what Paul and other missionaries preached to them. So the church in that period of time transitioned from predominantly Jewish to predominantly Gentile. That was also a time of great growth and of outreach by many faithful and dedicated people. And during that time, uh, the gospel actually reached the furthest parts of the Roman Empire. One of the things we've discussed, and we'll talk about some more, is British Christians, that uh, the gospel by 63 AD was already up in Britain. And uh, so it was reaching everywhere, going all over the world through the faithful witness of these people. But it was also a time of apostasy. In in that first century, there were churches that began to fall away. There were heresies that began to infiltrate the church. And we see that very clearly at the end of the first century with the Apostle John when he was preaching against the heresy of Gnosticism. 
That's one of the things that came up during that time. And so churches were falling away into apostasy during, I mean, just almost as soon as the apostles began preaching and Christ was gone, it wasn't long before Satan started sending in those heresies. Well, we move from the apostolic age into the next period, and this was the anti-Nicene age. And anti is a, a prefix that means preceding. So this particular time is the time preceding the Council of Nicaea. And we're going to talk about the Council of Nicaea in a later message. But this anti-Nicene age was actually divided into two periods. Uh, The early period of it was uh, the time of the Apostolic Fathers. And those Apostolic Fathers are ones who were acquaintances of the Apostles. Now, being in the early part of that second century, these were men that had met the apostles, had been taught by them personally, especially by the apostle John, who was the last one uh, to die. And so these were men that held on to those truths that were given to them by John and the other apostles, and they continued to preach those. But then you move on to the later part of that time, and you get beyond the time that uh, people actually knew the apostles. And so the next part of the anti-Nicene age was the time of the apologist. These are defenders of the faith. They didn't actually know the apostles personally, but they did continue in the doctrines that were taught, and they stood up against all of these heresies that were taking place at the time, and they remained true uh, to, the, to the teaching of, of the gospel. Uh, they remained true to the doctrine of the church that they had been taught. And so that period of time, uh, these men were known as the defenders of the faith. And it's a very important time because the heresies that started then had much to do with the division that would occur later and would give rise to a more organized faction of apostasy that would eventually claim to be the church of Christ when it really wasn't. Now, in the last lesson, we talked about some of those heresies that were starting up. And I want to go through those, uh, the first couple that we mentioned and add a, a couple more for you tonight. But we're speaking here about doctrinal errors of the period. And the true church is known by the rebuttal of these doctrinal errors. And the false church is known, of course, by the acceptance of them. And the errors that came along are not things that, that just happened all at once. I mean, this just wasn't a sudden thing that happened and all churches that were in apostasy or moving in that direction just suddenly took a doctrinal left turn. Well, that's not the case. These are errors that gain slow acceptance and gradually they begin to permeate many of the churches until you have a whole large group of churches that accept these particular errors. Now, there were four main errors during that time. And we did have time to talk about two of them the last time. And so we're going to discuss the other two this evening. But let me just very briefly give those first to you again because they they are extremely important errors. And the first of those was ecclesiasticism. Ecclesiasticism is a division between the clergy and the laity. And so instead of the New Testament model that has one people that are striving together for the gospel, there's a division in which the leadership sets itself apart from the people and the leadership begins to take personal control of all the affairs of the church. Now, ecclesiasticism is also a shift from the concept of the local church to a universal church. Now, the pastors 
of churches would gather for fellowship, and these were very powerful men. As I said, they'd taken control of their congregations. And so these pastors would get together, and as they began to organize, organization needs a bureaucracy. And so what they did was they appointed a regional bishop that had control over all of these pastors and then uh, also over the churches that they pastored. Well, as I mentioned last week, you have more than one region. And so uh, if you have more than one region, you have more than one regional bishop. And so you need to get those regional bishops together, which they did. And then they had to elect somebody to be over the regional bishops. And so that's where you get the archbishop who comes and takes control of that. And eventually that goes on and on and on until there is so much bureaucracy that they elect a pope to be over them. And by that time, this thing had gone so far that the man who says he is the Pope claimed so much authority that he actually said that he stood in the place of Christ in this world. So ecclesiasticism is what leads to a hierarchical form of church government. And as churches got further and further away from New Testament the New Testament form of government, then they were setting up for what would eventually become the Roman Catholic Church. Now, along with ecclesiasticism came an inevitable consequence of it, and that is the second error, which is sacerdotalism. Now, when the clergy separates itself and it takes on more power than the New Testament allows, then it feels that it has the need to perpetuate itself. Uh, They need more power. They need to stay in power. They need to perpetuate themselves, and so they give themselves or define for themselves a new status in the church in which you have priests that stand in the place of the believer and represents them to God. So sacerdotalism is when a priest says that he stands between you and God and you, you need him in order to reach God and he's the one that puts you in touch with God and he does that through the administering of sacraments. And so the priest actually becomes indispensable to salvation And the church that authorizes the priests also becomes indispensable. Now, during the anti-Nicene age, those two heresies were growing. And yet there were true churches that resisted all of that, and they did still hold on to the New Testament model. And, And you can see with those two errors that churches are going away from the true way of salvation. Now, one thing a church can do, it can fall into some very serious doctrinal errors, but one thing that it cannot go into and still be a true church, and that is it can't be in error on the doctrine of salvation. So those two things, ecclesiasticism and sacerdotalism, actually are an indirect attack on the gospel. That's what you might call the backdoor approach. But there was a more frontal assault that came next, and this next error became a major battleground of the gospel itself. And so the third error that appeared during this time was the error of baptismal regeneration. Now a sacerdotal system, of course, will thrive. It must thrive on sacraments, and a sacrament is a ritual that is a means of grace. And so as churches went further and further away into liberalism, the membership of the church became increasingly overbalanced with unregenerate people. Now, to make that very simple for you, all I'm saying is there were more unsaved people in the church than there were saved people. And so the tendency of the unsaved, especially when they come out of paganism, their tendency is to look for rituals and for ceremonies that will help to save them. And we know that the New Testament only only knows of 
two ceremonies. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the first one of those to be perverted was the doctrine of baptism. And that's because baptism is the first rite of a Christian. Now, you, you, you all know this. You know the drill on baptism, what baptism is. That baptism is a, a public confession of the gospel. That in baptism we show a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so we actually make a declaration of faith or what we believe when we're baptized in water. And then, of course, baptism also shows that we have a new life, that we've died to our old way of life and we've risen to new life in Christ. And, and so baptism then, by saying all of these things, would only be for a person who has already believed. We, we don't baptize unbelievers, and that's why we call this believer's baptism. We don't call it unbelievers' baptism. So this is for people who have believed the gospel, they have received Christ as the Savior. And no matter whose history that you read of Baptist churches, that's always a thread that you're going to find common among Baptists. We've always taught this, that we believe in believer's baptism. And that's what the new church, first church did. That's what we do because they practiced that particular type of baptism. That's what the New Testament teaches. So that's a, that's a belief that baptism is a symbol of faith. But the perversion of baptismal regeneration says that the symbol actually becomes the thing that is signified. Or in other words, it becomes salvation. That baptism becomes regeneration so that people are regenerated in the water. Now, that was the most significant attack on the gospel that had yet occurred. And so that became a major battleground during this particular period. Now, you remember going back into the first century that the apostle Paul battled the issue of circumcision. There were people that wanted to hold on to circumcision, and that's the right, that's the ceremony that they wanted. And Paul called justification through circumcision another gospel, or literally that means a gospel of another kind. And so it's really interesting that you find in the theology of apostate churches the idea that baptism replaced circumcision. Now, baptism did not replace circumcision, but even if it did, it wouldn't be any better for, uh, for saving us than circumcision was. But nevertheless, there were people in Paul's time that wanted that symbol or they wanted that, that ritual, that ceremony to go through. And so they sought to be justified through circumcision. And when you get into the anti-Nicene period, they've gone so far off from the doctrine of salvation that now they seek to be justified by this ritual of baptism. And so that becomes their salvation. And so apostate churches then were incensed when there were people called Anabaptists that were rebaptizers that would not accept the baptism of churches that taught this false gospel because they weren't true converts to the faith. So baptismal regeneration is a false gospel. And still today, what we practice in the Baptist church is that we rebaptize people that come out of churches that believe in baptismal regeneration. So we don't accept the baptism of Roman Catholics. We don't accept the baptism of the Protestant churches. Uh, they fail on different issues. The, um, the Catholics fail on the issue of, of regeneration, baptismal regeneration. And many of the Protestant churches, some of them fail on that issue as well. But they also fail on the issue of authority. And so we don't take baptism from Protestant churches. And so uh, you, you can fail on the issue of purpose. 
and you can fail on the issue of the proper recipient. And if you don't have all of these things right, then you don't have a proper baptism. Well, towards the end of the Antinicene period, there was a fourth heresy that was just appearing. Uh, when you go wrong on baptism, you've just cut a vital connecting link to the New Testament. And so from there, the trip is all downhill. Uh, you perverted the reason for baptism. And next comes a more serious or a, maybe an equally serious problem that is perverting the person of baptism. So the fourth error that occurred during this time is the error of infant baptism. Now, as I said, infant baptism was just getting started at the end of this period. And so there were a few isolated cases of it taking place. And then, of course, it became much more prominent later. But infant baptism is the next logical step that you would take from a belief of baptism or regeneration. I mean, it stands to reason if people are saved in their baptism, the best thing that you can do is to baptize them as soon as possible. So why not just take an infant when he comes from the womb and baptize that infant? And so you have the heresy of changing the purpose of baptism, and that translates also into an error of, the, of, of a change of person of baptism. So, so no longer is it a, a believing adults only that can be baptized, but now you can take infants and do that. Now, back in these days, they still practice immersion. And so what they would do is they would fully immerse infants. I mean, they didn't have enough understanding for a while there that, that baptism means immersion, so they would practice it in that way. But if you can change things, then why not change this also? Uh, you, you need some convenience. It's a little bit harder to go find a, a tank or, or not, in their case, to go find a river or something like that and take everybody there to baptize people. So to make it much simpler, they changed the mode of baptism, and that goes from immersion to pouring some water over the body and then finally to the practice of sprinkling that they have in those churches today. And so to wrap up the doctrinal issues... Uh, ecclesiasticism, sacerdotalism, baptismal regeneration, and infant baptism is what was beginning to creep into the churches then. And I would just ask you, those are the tenets of who? Mainly today, who are those the tenets of? That's the tenets of Roman Catholicism. And that's where all of this was headed. It's headed towards the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. But you need to remember that all this, all this time, there were people that were utterly resistant to all of the changes. Christ had promised that there was a church that would be true to his teachings, and the church was still there. And so as we look at that, we might wonder, well, how could the church survive so much change? And later on, we're going to see persecution. We'll talk some more about that as we get into to later centuries. But how is it that the church can survive all of these changes that are taking place and we still have a true church today? Well, I think what I wanted to do when I thought about that was to give you the keys for survival. How is it that churches can survive? So fourthly, we're going to look at the keys for survival. With all the opposition that the church has against it, what are the vital keys that help the church survive? Well, number one would have to be the sovereign grace of God. The sovereign grace of God is why the church can continue. Now, I find it interesting that one Baptist pastor said, and I quote from him, 
He said, I'm not sure that sovereign can be used as a modifier for grace. And all I can say to that is that man owes his membership in a Baptist church to the sovereign grace of God. And what's amazing to me that people can be so insistent on rejecting the doctrines of grace that they'll go to extremes in order to prove it. Now, you can, you can reject those doctrines if you want. If that's your position, then okay, it is. But at least do this. Find a platitude that makes some sense in order to try to refute the doctrine. But going on, uh, the sovereign grace of God is the only reason that any person is saved. When the gospel is preached, it's the sovereign grace of God that takes over in the salvation of souls. As the Apostle Paul said, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the power is not in us, that the power of salvation is God's power, and I don't have anything to do with that. It's not, it's not my power to believe in him. It's God's power that I believe in him. And that's just plain Bible. And so it's God who has that kind of power who determines history. And no matter who tries to stop the church or who tries to pervert the doctrine of the church, it's the sovereign grace of God that keeps a a remnant believing church still in the world. God is able to do that, and he does. And it takes the sovereign grace of God. And if you try to rule out the sovereign grace of God, there will be no church. So that's number one on our list. The sovereign grace of God is a key to the survival of God's church. Now the second thing that is a key is obedience to the commission. Now today there are hundreds of mission boards throughout the world and there are thousands and thousands of missionaries. And so we have a very special concerted effort, a direct effort to take the gospel into places where it's never been preached. Well in the first century... In the first church, there were no mission boards. So how, how then was the spread of the gospel accomplished? Well, listen very carefully to this. It was through the obedience of ordinary believers to the commission that's given to every disciple. Well, pastors and evangelists for sure, but even more so the average person who is in the pew. Now you see, back in those times... There was no division between clergy and laity. And the membership was not apprised to some secret code that said that only pastors and missionaries can preach the gospel. Now what we do today is we take our money and we drop it into the offering plate and we pay the pastor or we pay the missionaries to take care of evangelism for us. And so we just pass off our own responsibility. But the early church never did that. Because they understood that it was the duty of every member to share their faith. And they were faithful to the gospel to do that everywhere they went. They actually believed that their life was the gospel. And so they lived it and they took it. And so they not only just just told people in words what the gospel was, but through their deeds, the way that they lived their lives, they showed people the living gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they lived that profession and they talked the profession. And if we still had more Christians today that were like that, then we would live in a very much different world. Now, thirdly, the third key is unreserved devotion to the cause. And so let me put it to you very simply. They were willing to die for the truth. Now, apostate enemies of believers were often bumfuzzled by this 
Because no matter what they did, no matter how much persecution, and even under the threat of death, they could not get true believers in Christ to renounce their faith. They believed just like Paul did. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when you have that kind of unfailing hope that if you die, it's gain, then you're never going to have a problem dying for the gospel. And then also get this, they expected that this would happen to them. This is not just something that, that could, could uh, um, maybe in some far-off world somewhere, it could be possible we could lose our lives for being a Christian. No, you're talking about people in this time that expected that this could happen. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. So Peter says, this is not a strange thing. Don't think when you get persecuted that this is odd, this, is, this would happen. And then this, this is what Paul said. He said, this is the life of a Christian. He says, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So real believers do that. And they still do it. And we're not so much accustomed to it in our country, but there are still places where believing in Christ is a death sentence. Mona sent me a letter a couple of months ago about a friend in Iran who faced death for being a Christian. Now, we're not happy to hear things like that, not at all, but we're not surprised by it either. This is, this is life for people who, who want to serve Christ in some of the foreign countries. It's what happens when you take a stand for Christ. Martyrdom never destroyed the church. What it's done is always to make it grow stronger. And so sometimes I wonder, what would we do if we were threatened with our lives because we believe in the gospel. Well, I think most of us would say, well, I would die for Christ. I, that's what I would do. And that's real easy for us to say when you're sitting in a pew in a church building rather than uh, being beaten and bloody and lying on a cold concrete floor with a gun at your head. But what would we do? Well, I actually do believe that true Christians will stand that test. And you know why? Because when that hour comes, that's when we get more of this sovereign grace of God. That God enables us to go through that. Now you need to understand this, that believers in the first century are no different than you and me. The same Holy Spirit that lived in them lives in us. And you needn't think that they weren't afraid of things, and you needn't think that they didn't, didn't have these kinds of things on their mind, and, they, and I'm not going to say worry, but they might have had some anxiety. Maybe that would be a better word to use for their children, for their families, for themselves. But when it came time, they stood up, and they went to death. They're no different than me and you. And there's only one way that that can happen. And that is the grace of God, that sovereign grace of God, gives a person the ability to withstand in the hour of need. And I know it has to be true, because if it wasn't, there would be no church today. There was plenty of persecution that could have wiped it all out. But believers kept on being believers. So, we just know this, that when you die, when you die, you're immediately in the presence of the Lord. And with that kind of a hope, death poses no problem for you when the time comes. 
So that's the third key. Now, number four, number four is the exclusivity of Christianity. Now, maybe you don't understand how essential this is because the modern ecumenical tolerant church, I don't think, understands this at all. A few years ago, uh, Billy Graham said that it doesn't matter if you've ever heard of Christ, that if you are a sincere Hindu or a Buddhist and you're looking for truth, then you'll be fine that God will honor that sincerity, that God's going to call out of people that have never even heard of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you that example a little bit later in the message, and you'll see the actual words that Billy Graham said. Joel Osteen said that he couldn't really pass judgment on other religions. He said Mormons are Christians, even though they don't believe in the Christ of the Bible. But he says that's okay, or... He indicated that it was because he said they love the same Christ that he loves. And so that might actually be true because he has a different Christ that's in the Bible. And maybe he does have the same Christ to the Mormons. I don't know. So maybe they both love the same Christ. But true Christianity knows the difference in these things. It doesn't admit to any other way of salvation except through faith in the Christ of the Bible. Now, do you understand how devastating that that kind of inclusiveness would be to the church? That if you were to say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe, that the grace of God covers anybody that, that uh, is sincere about trying to look for something and they know that they need something, well, if that would be true, it would completely stop evangelism. There's no need for evangelism if it doesn't matter what you believe. It ruins the faith of the church. And it makes the death of Christ unnecessary. Now, can you imagine what it would be like today if the ancient Christians were preached to in that kind of vein by Billy Graham? I mean, this early church that practiced no tolerance for pagans, they knew nothing at all but Christ. They knew nothing of a Christianity that was mixed with paganism and and the Catholicism that we have today. Billions of people die and go to hell in that system because somebody thought that a little tolerance would would do the trick. Now, if early Christians thought like that, there would be no true church today. And you could just count on it. All of us would be Roman Catholics. And unfortunately, all of us would be on the way to hell with that kind of a belief. So the exclusivity of our faith keeps us alive. I want you to note that important statement. The exclusivity of our faith keeps us alive. Now think about that as we look at the fifth key to survival, and that is the inclusiveness of the gospel. Now we're looking at this in a little different way. We do exclude the religion of all others, but the gospel is inclusive of all people that forsake all of those religions. So the gospel's not ethnic, it's not racial, it's not national, but the gospel is available for every race and for every kindred, for every tongue. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what the gospel doesn't do, it doesn't pick and choose which people are acceptable to hear it. Now the early Christians had no problem with that, knowing that every person that they met needed to hear the gospel. And so they never looked at a person's skin. They never looked at their social status. None of that mattered. And we'd do a whole lot better if we would forget all of those kinds of distinctions and just give the gospel to people who need to be saved. 
Now, let me give you one more key. Key number six is absolute confidence in the Bible. There was nobody during this time that argued about which parts of the Bible are true, if any of it. They had no trouble believing that this was God's word. And so they knew that God would reveal himself through the pages of Scripture, that he reveals himself in very special ways. They believed in 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, for correction, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good work. And so they had absolute confidence in the Bible. And when you have confidence in the Word of God, you will live by it. And that's actually essential for bringing people to Christ because hypocrites don't bring people to Christ. You, you have to live the gospel. So they lived it, and it ruled their lives. And this is the testimony. I, I read one of these, uh, I think, a, a week or so ago, a couple weeks ago maybe, one of the testimonies that was written by those that were persecuting them, the inquisitors, that they remarked what a godly and moral people they were. That's the testimony that they had. So these are keys for the church that, that kept it from falling into the apostates that, apostates that dragged others down. Now, what we're not talking about here is that those who go into apostasy are at one time faithful believers. We're not talking about those kinds of people because they don't go into apostasy. We're talking about that unregenerate church membership that began to overtake the churches because of their false beliefs, because of their baptismal regeneration and all of those things. So it's like the Apostle John said. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So John says that if you are a believer, you'll stick to being a believer. You, you don't change. That's what you are. But people that go out and they become something different and they go into apostasy, these are people that were never believers in the first place. Well, that leaves us then with just one area to discuss as we finish up the anti-Nicene age, and that's to look at the true believers that were in the period. Who were they? Now, in, in, our, in our outline and other places, I, I pointed out that true believers were often accused of heresies that they did not own. And so many times you find a, a heretical group that's identified with true believers, even though they're very different. And, and when your history is written by your enemies, they don't care if they slander you, and they don't care how they slander you. So that, that's an issue that we have to deal with. Well, during this time... There was a group that was called the Montanist, the Montanist. And the Montanist stood up against departures from the faith. The prominent person at that time was a man by the name of Montanus, and he lived in the late second century. And, and, and uh, when we use his name and, and this movement takes his name, that doesn't mean that he's the one that invented it. Oh, true churches were standing against these heresies all of the time. Uh, these things that were creeping into the church, there were always true churches standing against it. Uh, but these were, these were people that took on that name as would happen many times. The major groups would take on the names of the most prominent leader that was leading them at the time. And this particular time was a man by the name of Montanus. Now, 
the Baptists at that time then were known as Montanists. Uh, they preached against, I mean, this is one of the, the, the things that they really stood for. They preached against a lack of holiness in the church. All those unregenerate people coming in, they preached against that, a lack of holiness in the church. And so when you hear me preach about the same thing, about the lack of holiness in this church or in any other church, then I am a Montanist because that's what Baptists were called in that time. Now, this is what one historian said. He said, Montanism was not a new form of Christianity, nor were the Montanists a new sect. On the contrary, Montanism was simply a reaction of the old primitive church against the obvious tendency of the day to strike a bargain with the world and arrange herself comfortably in it. Montanist stood for a regenerated church membership. They did not accept baptismal regeneration. They were against an ecclesiastical hierarchy. They were against sacerdotalism. They affirmed that the New Testament teaches the priesthood of believers, just as we believe today. They opposed infant baptism. And they were also known as, and you can note this, Anabaptist. They were also known by that name. Now, I could go on with talking to you more about them, but what I really want to do is just show you that there were true churches that opposed all of these doctrinal shifts that finally led to Roman Catholicism. These are people that are never a part of Catholicism. They're here before Catholicism ever existed. And they were charged with many heresies. But those apologists that we talked about a few minutes ago, those in the latter part of the, that were the defenders of the faith, the latter part of the anti-Nicene period, the apologists said that the Montanists were teaching the truth. So they held on to that name, and it's a, it's a name that you find uh, all the way as late as the 8th century, you still find Montanists. Now, the second group that I want to describe for you are called the Novatians. And the Novatians have two possibilities for the origin of their name. Either they were followers of Novation, who was a, a leader in Rome, or else they were followers, followers of Novatus, uh, Novatus rather, who uh, opposed Cyprian in North Africa. And so you can pick either one of those that you want. Nobody's really certain about which one of those men that it was named after. But the objections, whether you're talking about one or the other, were pretty much the same as the Montanists. I mean, every heretical practice that was going on during their time, they stood against it, just like the Montanists did. And, and they were the same. They were contending for the faith. The only difference there is is just the difference in the name. And that happens to be the leader that's closest to him at the time. Now, the Novatians were prominent in the 3rd century up to the 8th century. And there's a little interesting notation about them that historians have, have uh, said. And that was that they believed in a restricted communion. Does that ring a bell to you? I mean, do you think that Brian Baptist Church invented the doctrine of a restricted communion? Not at all. I mean, here you have people 1,800 years ago that restricted the communion. They insisted that apostates should not be allowed to the communion. And then listen to this. Their, their basis for that, they insisted on a restricted communion on the basis of church discipline. And isn't that what I taught you in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? The strongest support for a restricted communion is church discipline. And you know what that means? Maybe don't make this connection, but it means that they believed in local church. 
That's why they have a restricted communion, because they believe in local church. And then they believed, as I talked about the holiness issue, they're like the Montanists on this, they believed in a pure church membership. So they had another name that they were called by, and that's the Kathari, C-A-T-H-A-R-I, the Kathari. They were also known by that name. And that name transitioned into another name that means pure. And can you guess what that would be? The Puritans. Right, the Puritans. And so the, this is the same group that just carries on into the Puritans that we find all the way up into the uh, Protestant Reformation. Now, if you know something about the Puritans, you know that many of those groups did not or weren't, weren't good on the church issue. I mean, they're universal church, invisible church, and all of those kinds of things, so they aren't very clear on that. But among those Puritans, there were also Baptists who believe like we do. You have a large group that's going under the same name, but you have Baptists that believe like we do. As late as the uh, 19th century, the end of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon said that he was a Puritan. He claimed to be a Puritan. And I don't know of anybody that is any closer on church doctrine and things that we stand for than Charles Spurgeon was. So these are people during that time and uh, that, that believed uh, the truth that was being taught by the apostles. They'd held on to that. And historians tell us this, particularly, let me mention to you Mosheim. And you may remember we had that lesson talking about the historians a few weeks ago. Mosheim is the Lutheran historian. And uh, Mosheim is considered to be one of the greatest of the church historians. And this is what he said about the Novations. He said, they cannot be claimed to have corrupted church doctrine. And Mosheim said they were, they were peculiar in strict communion and insistence of rebaptizing those who came from unregenerate churches, those who believed in baptismal regeneration. And Mosheim said they were New Testament in doctrine and practice. Now what happens when you have these kinds of things that are said and people are trying to argue against uh, the Novations being a true church that they attack Novatists, or they attack Novation themselves. And so they'll claim that they're heretics. And that really doesn't make any difference whether they were heretics or not because they, these people that the Novations didn't get their doctrine from either Novatists or Novation, they got it from the New Testament. But the ones who make those claims are those who are in apostate churches. So are you going to take their word for it? I'm not going to take their word for it. They're apostates. And so whether or not, I'm really not concerned about that, whether they were personally heretics, we do know what these people called the Novations or used that name. We do know what they believed. So those are two of the names used in the anti-Nicene period. True churches were known as Montanist and Novations. They weren't apostate. They held on to New Testament doctrine and truth, and they fought for that, and they fought against the heresies of their time. So we call them the Baptist of the anti-Nicene age. Now that takes us through the apostolic age. It takes us to the anti-Nicene. And in the next lesson, we're going to take a look at churches that come after the Council of Nicaea. A couple of real interesting time periods. The time period uh, immediately after the anti-Nicene age and then getting into the Middle Ages. Those are two very, very interesting times of church history. So we're going to look at that the next time. The Apostle Paul said, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world 
without end. Amen. And that promise is still true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the, the truth that we have from your word. And we, we are so thankful for our forefathers that, that were willing to give their lives for the gospel. We're thankful that they were faithful to take the commission and they told people about Christ. And they're the reason that we're even here tonight able to talk about these very things. So Lord, I, I pray, first of all, that we would be loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ that we would stand for him no matter what, no matter what the opposition is. But then we would also remember the sacrifices that were made by our Baptist forefathers and that we don't allow them to give their lives in vain. But we stand for the truth, we preach the truth, and we keep the church alive in this century through the sovereign grace of our God. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org